Welcome to Timberwood Church's Wednesday night study on the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 5 tonight, but let's open in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chance to come together. Thank you for this chance to look at what happened with your people so many years ago, but is still so relevant today. Open the eyes of our hearts and our minds so that we can hear the truth and learn about you and learn about your relationship with your people. Lord, through all this, may we seek to glorify you in all we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are again chapter 5 of Nehemiah tonight, and we're going to be starting with verse 1. Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. All right, just so we remember where we're at in our uh, story here. Back in chapter 4, the neighboring uh, nations, neighboring people, particularly the Samaritans, had been uh, attacking the workers who were trying to rebuild the wall. And they were trying to keep them from rebuilding the wall because they did not want Jerusalem to become a walled city again. And in this uh, process, Nehemiah was trying to arm um, the people to protect them as they were working on the wall. And the people that are outside Jerusalem, the farmers that are around the area, uh, came forward And we see that in chapter 4, verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them 
came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us, you must return to us, you must return to us. So what they are saying is use us. They're coming forward, and, and they're not part of building the wall because they don't live in Jerusalem, but they're saying use us in this process, and that's what Nehemiah does. He arms them and uses them as kind of a protective shield around the people who are working on the wall. The result of this, though, of the people coming off the farms is they are not farming. They aren't planting crops or not harvesting crops. And that has kind of a double, uh, double effect because they don't have food for themselves and they also don't have food to sell to the people in Jerusalem. So that's what we're seeing in 5. And so when we see that a, a great outcry of the people and their wives, uh, some people got a kick out of that today, uh, it, the power of that is normally wives are never mentioned. The, the statement by a wife that this isn't right had no standing. But here they're saying the, the husbands and their wives, in other words, all the people, all the, the family units are coming forward and saying this isn't right. And, and what is it that isn't right? Well, if they're having to, to buy grain, okay, that's one thing. They have to buy grain to eat. But they're having to mortgage uh, their property to get the money to buy the grain. And so they're being charged interest. And really, the lenders are taking advantage of the situation. They're lending them money knowing that they really have no way to pay it back and are charging interest that is to the extent that is creating a debt greater than even what the property's worth. And they eventually just take the people's properties. And that's what we're going to be seeing through here is that they're using this opportunity not so much to, to make money on selling them grain, but to get their property. And so these farmers who have rallied around this call by God to restore the walls of Jerusalem, to restore God's city, they're doing this to, to work with and help the people of God. Some of the people of God are using this situation to their advantage to basically take land away from the farmers. And that isn't right. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. Now, we're not sure if the famine is a weather-related famine, if there's bad weather, or if there's a famine just simply because the people are working on the wall and they're not planting their crops and harvesting their crops. But either way, there's a significant lack of food. So, they're having to do that. They are also having to borrow money for the king's tax we see on the fields and vineyards. That's interesting. Remember the letter we saw back in Ezra? We read that letter that was written by the, the local uh, nations around them and said, if you allow them to build a wall, they're not going to pay their tax to you. Well, here they are building the wall, and they're still paying the tax to the king. And they're having to borrow money to pay tax to the king and pay interest on that money. So not only are they paying the tax, they're paying it with a hardship to themselves. Now, our flesh is our flesh as our brothers. In other words, these are fellow Jews, fellow citizens of Judah who are doing this. And they're even having to force their children to become slaves. What happens when your debt gets too great? What happens when they've taken your property and you have no collateral anymore? You have no way to borrow money and you still need to eat? You sell yourself into slavery. And often it's easier to sell your kids into slavery than yourself, especially your daughters, because they're sold into slavery and then they become uh, wives or second wives 
And that seems to be what's happening when we see, yet we are for, they are forcing um, sons and daughters to become slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, meaning it's already happening. We've already been through all of our land, everything we own. Now we're down to starvation or selling our kids into slavery. And it's not, as it says, it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. There's nothing we can do. We starve to death or we do this. Now, it's, it's fascinating to see this when God has done this powerful, miraculous work, having the, the Medes and Persians conquer the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians allow the Jews to go back. They go back. They rebuild the temple. Now they're rebuilding the wall. God is providing through the Persians to actually provide the materials. He's provided uh, the, the royal uh, edicts to make it all happen. It bring, brings about all this miraculous work. The people rally around it. They're, they're excited. Even the people that aren't even in Jerusalem are rallying around this great effort to... Uh, to bring a wall back to the city of God. And yet there are some that look at this and go, wow, I can make some money off this. In fact, I can take advantage of them. In fact, I can, if I play my cards right during this whole process, I can come out of it a whole lot better at the expense of the people that are doing the call of God. And, and we see this in our situation today. I mean, we're in a bit of a national crisis, obviously. Um, there are people that look at that and say, wow, here are opportunities to make money at the expense of others. And hopefully no follower of Jesus Christ ever does that. Hopefully a follower of Jesus Christ says, here's a chance to show what the people of God do, how the people of God act, how the people of God rally around the needs of others. And don't just say, how do I come out richer than I went into this whole thing? Well, this whole situation, as we see in, in 6, makes Nehemiah very angry. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And he says, I took counsel with myself. You ever do that? Sit down with yourself, have a little talk. Hey, what, what should I do? Then you say to yourself, let me think about it. And then you say to yourself, no, I need to know now. You ever do that? It's interesting. There's a couple ways you can look at it. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. Generally, this is seen as Nehemiah couldn't take counsel with who he normally would take counsel to, the nobles and the officials, because they're generally the problem. So he can't talk to them about it. So he talked to himself. But many astute Nehemiah student looks at that and says, well, wait a minute. Throughout Nehemiah, God has, Nehemiah has turned to God. He's prayed about these situations. And, and so we, here he is in a, in a critical situation, a, a situation that, quite frankly, is, is having significantly negative consequences, not only on, on his mission, but on the people of God. And he doesn't pray about it. He just talks to himself about it. Is that right? That's interesting. Sometimes we think we got to pray to God about everything. 
And if we ask somebody to do something, we say, hey, would you do this or do that, or I think you should do that, they'll say, well, wait a minute, let me pray about it. And, and it's all good to pray, and that's important, but sometimes when we're called to do what we know God would have us do, we don't need to pray about it. If somebody says to you, I think you should study the Bible more, you go, well, wait a minute, let me pray about that. Let me see what God wants me to do. No, wait a minute, you, you don't have to pray about that. You know what's right in that situation. And part of spiritual formation, in fact, a significant part of spiritual formation is where we are formed or transformed. Our very being is shaped and molded to the extent that we can see things the way God would have us see them, and we know what to do. As we always talk about, our doing needs to come from our being, our being in Christ. As we are made like Christ, spiritual formation, our spirit being formed to be like Christ, we then do what is appropriate based on that. We don't need to ask God what to do in every situation. In fact, most times, we don't need to know what to do. We just need some strength and some discernment in how to do it. So, Nehemiah knew what was right. Because what he witnessed or what he heard, he knew was wrong. So he's sitting here in this situation telling himself, I got to do something. Like, I got to do something now. This is not right. And even though it's my nobles and my officials, my own people that are doing this, I got to do it. And I got to do it now. So keep in mind, when, 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 you, when you're in a situation, can you discern what God would have you do without having to go, I have to ask God every time? We can easily run into that puppet mentality. I just wait to tell God to go left or right. No, God says, I am telling you who to be, how to live, and how to know what's right and wrong. Well, Nehemiah knows what's right and wrong. He brings charges against his nobles and officials. And he says to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. Is interest bad? The Bible, we don't see interest really talked about in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. And sometimes it seems like the, the Israelites, the people of God, are not supposed to collect interest. And sometimes it seems like it's okay to collect interest. And it doesn't seem situational. It just seems to kind of go back and forth in different situations. But the point here is very specific. They're doing something unique. They're doing something that is a direct response to the call of God. And this is a time when everyone should come together and do what's best to bring this about. So, Nehemiah says, I held a great assembly against them. So, in other words, he brings all the people. Okay, you got your officials, your nobles. Nehemiah goes to them and says, you shouldn't do this. They can say what? Nah, I don't care. It's us against you. There's more of us than you. We have the power. We have the money. So, what does Nehemiah do? He brings them out, gathers all the people. Those are the people that they're charging interest of, whose land they've taken, who have They've been selling uh, grain to at very great profit to themselves. So he holds a great assembly against them 
and says to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. In other words, in tough times, especially the people that are left behind, they were the poorest of the poor who were not taken into captivity by the Babylonians. They often found themselves in slavery to the surrounding nations, uh, particularly in Samaria, in, in Moab, and some of the other areas. And, and when the Jews came back from captivity, they went about uh, seeking to buy back Jews from, from the neighboring nations who had been sold into slavery. They tried to get as many of the Jews back into Judah as they could. And so they went about this process of buying them. Well, they bought them, but as they needed food, as they lost the ability to raise money in any other way, they were being enslaved to the very people group who had went and bought them from the other nations. So Nehemiah is saying, wait a minute, we bought these guys out of Samaria, and now you've enslaved them to Jews. You've got to be kidding me. And again, he does this in front of the assembled nation of Judah. So he says, what, what are you doing? And their answer is, they were silent and could not find a word to say. I love that. You're probably looking at several thousand people looking at you. Nehemiah, who we're just going to hear for sure for, in just a little bit, that he is the governor. He is the representative of, of the king is bringing these charges against you, and he's saying you're charging them interest, and you're enslaving the very people we brought back. How could you do that? Well, what are they going to argue? No, we aren't. No, it's okay. I mean, your jury is sitting surrounding you right now. So they were smart enough to be silent and to say nothing. And he goes on. thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in fear of the Lord or fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? This is very interesting. Remember, all the nations around them are watching what's happening in Jerusalem, in Judea. They've come back. They're rebuilding. We already know all the attempts they've made uh, to try and stop that by going to the various uh, kings over the years of uh, Medes and Persians, and trying to get this whole effort of rebuilding to stop. They've attacked them. They've tried to do everything they could to stop them. And now that this is going on, they've got to be looking and saying, well, they're, they're eating themselves. Look at They're destroying themselves. They're enslaving their own people. These are what these people of God are like. God brings them back blesses them, protects them, does all this, and they just enslave themselves and enslave each other. When Nehemiah says, don't you fear God enough that you want God to look good to the people around us? Everything we do as a people of God reflects on God. Don't you fear God that you want the people to also fear God? And to see our reverence for him in how we live our lives. And it's the same today. Do we live our lives thinking that what we do actually reflects on God? 
reflects on Jesus Christ. You know, we, we've all heard it, we, and I've said it many times. Oftentimes when you're trying to witness to somebody, they say, I know too many Christians, don't talk to me about Christianity. Now, I was trying to tell them, I'm not talking to you about Christianity. I'm not even talking to you about Christians. I'm talking about Jesus Christ and how everyone needs a Savior. Well, that's sometimes a challenging situation in and of itself. We don't make it more challenging by reflecting poorly on God. And when we reflect poorly on God, it, Nehemiah, it clearly comes from a lack of fear of God. If we feared God, we want him to look good. If I'm making somebody look bad to a group of people, obviously I don't care about that individual and I don't fear that individual. I mean, if I, if I feared my parents when I was growing up, I certainly wasn't going to make the Wigan name be bad in the city of Elbert Lee. And it's the same with God. So he challenges them and says, don't you fear God? Don't you want us to look good around to the nations around us? How are we to be used by God to preach the truth to the nations around us and reveal the power of God when we don't even fear him ourselves? And then in verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money, the people, and grain. So he'd also been lending them. Now, it doesn't sound like he takes any property. We're not even sure if he collects any interest, but the next line tends to make us think he's collecting interest. He said, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Wait a minute. You want me to lend them money and not charge interest? you got to be kidding me. I should be able to charge interest. Are you on the wall? Are you building? Are you standing guard over to protect the people that are building the wall? You can certainly lend them some money to feed them so that they can eat. So he says that. And then in 11... Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've exacted from them. Okay, all this land grab that you're doing, this lending so I can get their land so that I can enrich myself. No, you need to give all their land back. You need to go back and make it right. And that's what he orders them to do. And so, to make sure, they say, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They say that in verse 12. But he doesn't really trust them. I think that's, that's a powerful sign. These, again, are his own officials and nobles. Now, he didn't choose them. He inherited them. But he doesn't trust them. So what does he do? I called, continuing on verse 12, I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. So he brings the priests down as witnesses. They say, yeah, 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 we'll do it. And he goes, yeah, I don't trust you. He calls the priests down and has them swear in front of the priests. So, 
All the people are surrounding him. They've agreed. He brings the priests down and makes them promise in front of the priests. So bringing God into the equation in a visible way, the mediators between the people and, and God, the priests. So I called the priests and made them swear as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. Praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So let me just make sure I get this right. I'm making you swear in front of everybody. I brought the priests down. And you have to swear in front of the priests. And oh, by the way, I'm making a vow with God that if you don't do this, that you will be taken away from your house and everything you have. Any questions? And the assembly says amen, saying that, that means they agree. Praise the Lord. And the people did as they were promised, or as they had promised. It's a powerful situation where Nehemiah makes himself big. <laughs> Nehemiah sees what's wrong and knows it's wrong in the eyes of God. He doesn't need to, to ask God. He knows it's wrong. He brings everybody together and says, this is the situation. He brings the representatives of God, the priests, into the situation. And he says, this is the way it's going to be. Sometimes leaders need to make themselves big. Sometimes they need to bring all the power available to them to address a wrong, especially a wrong of the magnitude of this. It goes on, verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. It's interesting, Nehemiah, uh, after doing what he just did, then talks about his own situation and how he's approaching his governorship. By the way, in 14, that's the first time we hear he's actually governor, and he's been governor since he's gotten there. We've been talking over the last several weeks, referring to him as being governor, but this is actually where we are told that he's been governor since he got there. And as governor, he can do several things. It's, it's taken for granted that he will have his own tax on the people to pay for his own household. 
He has the ability to acquire land. When land is forfeited uh, for tax reasons or governmental reasons, he can take that land. He also gets a, um, like a food allowance. He gets money, but he has to collect that in tax from the people. So he really has a chance to, to enrich himself in three ways, a direct tax by acquiring land through the tax system and then taxing for food and not uncommon to overtax the people more than what you're actually spending on food. And so he said he's not doing any of that. In fact, he's not even taking the food allowance at all that's given as a governor, which is no small thing. As governor, you, you feed a lot of people. You're, at your table are your, your officials and, and the nobles and all that, plus often um, leaders from their surrounding areas, leaders from friendly um, countries that are passing through. So as he says, it's not uncommon that he has 150 people at his table, and that's 150 people, and they're going to be extras. That's just the 150 males, essentially, at his table. So he's feeding a lot of people. It's taking an ox and six sheep every day um, to do that. How's he doing that? Well, he refers to out of his own expenses. We don't really know for sure. Does that mean he's his own wealth that he accumulated uh, for his work as the king? He, we, again, we know governors don't get paid, that they just have the ability to tax. And if he's not taxing, how is he bringing this about? We don't have those details. The point is that he is not trying to put any more burden on the people. And he says this right after he talked about the fact that the local nobles and officials were taking advantage of the people in this situation. He's saying, I'm not even taking what I normally would take and what every governor before me has taken and what is expected of me to take. I'm not doing it because the burden is so great on the people because what are we doing? We are focused on what God has called us to do. That is the most important thing here. The most important thing is not me, not my money, not my food on my table, not what's working for me. I don't do what's best for me. I do what I've been called to do by God. What all of God's people have been called to do. So we have to kind of figure out today. What is the call of God on God's people? We sometimes think calls are very specific things. You know, we've been called into ministry. If you're a pastor and you've been called into ministry. Okay, that's a very specific thing. But as followers of Christ, we go, I haven't really called, been called to anything. Well, that's not true. At least that's not what the Bible says. We're all called to be God's people. And we're to place that call over what's best for us in our eyes. And that becomes the challenge. The challenge is, can we discern from God's Word what we're called to do as people of God? And can we put that call first and foremost over what we deem is best for us. Well, we've talked over and over so many times, and we often talk on Wednesday nights. Can we trust God enough to know that what He calls us, what the teachings of Jesus Christ call us to do and be, are actually what's best for us? That we don't need to go beyond that, and I, Tom, have to figure out what's best for Tom. No, what's best for Tom is 
what Jesus Christ has taught. And that's what we need to do. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah has a chance to significantly better his financial situation. He has chose to serving God is better for him than doing that. It's not that he's sacrificing. Nowhere in here do we see, oh, and Nehemiah greatly sacrificed for God. No. He's doing what's best for Nehemiah and what's right in the eyes of God, and they're the same thing. And can we do that? Can we get to that place? At a time when, when layoffs are happening and the stock market's down and chaos seems to reign, and sometimes we can't even for sure say what next month is going to look like. Can we say, I, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ enough and I'm going to do what he teaches and trust him to provide for what I need. Usually what we're dealing with is not our needs anyway. We're dealing with our wants. We're dealing with our temporal wants that we desire but are not needs. And so often when we look at that, it's when we lose something that causes this great anguish, anxiety, hardship. But when you get right down to it, that thing that we've lost often is something we did without for years. Something that we have is always a necessity. It wasn't before we got it, but as soon as we get it, it's a necessity. It's just kind of the way things are. Nehemiah could have looked at all the prior governors and said, this is what they do. So it's a necessity for me to do that. I must tax the people, charge this, take land, do that. But he took a step back and said, what, what does God want to happen here? What is God's call? What's God's agenda? What's God's calling and purpose for my life? And how do I submit everything else to that call? How do I make everything else secondary to what God is trying to do? What is God trying to do during this time of the COVID-19 situation? I don't mean on a macro basis. What's he trying to do in each of our lives? I've asked people for the last couple of weeks about that, and people don't seem to know what to say. I said, what's God trying to do in your life because of this? Well, I don't know. I'm just trying to survive. No, what's he trying to do? What's he trying to teach you? What's he trying to show you? How is he using this to transform your life? Well, I don't think he is. Everything in life is a transforming moment if we submit it to God through Jesus Christ. Everything. Is he showing some things that you don't need? Is he showing you an opportunity to help somebody else? Is he showing you a way to look at your neighbor more closely than you have in the past? A way to think of somebody else above yourself? A way to really focus your life down? 
Most of us are scrambling so hard to go back and have life as normal, life as it was a month ago or a month and a half ago. That's where we want to get to, but that is not what God is going to do. He wants to use this situation to teach us and transform us. Don't waste this opportunity. Don't lose sight of God in this situation. God is not just there to get us through this. And, and so often that's what we think. I'm just, I'm holding on to Jesus because I just want him to get him through. Jesus is saying, stop, open your eyes. Would you let me show you some things? Instead of blindly just saying, no, 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 it's about me, just get me through this. He's saying, look at me. Look at me. Now listen. I'm trying to teach you some things here. Get in my word. Examine your life. Think about what it would mean to live our lives wholly and completely in Christ with him as our foundation. Some of us are having to spend more time at home than we have in the past because of Different situations. The governor just a couple hours ago gave the stay-at-home order. Uh, forget that shelter in place. Stay at home. That seems very direct, Minnesota way. So we stay at home. Does that mean we watch more TV? We binge on more movies? Or we look at God's word. We pray. We think. We seek to draw closer to God through Jesus Christ. And in this process, God opens our eyes and reveals truth to us. Not so that we get through this, but so that this transforms us. So when we get to the other side of this whole situation, and it's probably not that far away, that we're different. If in a year from now I came up to you and said, how are you different because of what we went through in this COVID-19 situation? How did God use that to change your life? And you went, uh, I don't know. That is a wasted opportunity. And it's not just an opportunity for yourself. It's an opportunity for God to do good in your life. Do good. Not enrich you but to do good, to do a transforming work that betters you as a follower of his son, Jesus Christ. And if five months from now it's life as to whatever normal is, and we're back to what we were before, yeah, that'll be a tragedy. It'll be a missed opportunity. It'll be us being us often. But the people of God, the kingdom of God, will suffer. Because we did not take that opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and thus, in a small way, transform the world. Because as we're transformed, we transform the world around us. Slowly, smallly, smallly, small ways the people around us look at us as the nations looked at Judah. The people around us look and say, 
Why are you different? Why did you look different during it? And why do you look different now after it than you did before? What happened to you? When we're all shaking in fear and hunkered down and worried, you were different. You had a peace about you. You had a, I don't know, a presence about you. And now that things are normal, you aren't like you were before. You're different. I'd even say transformed. That's what we all should want. That should be the desire of all of us. To show the world what the Holy Spirit can do in people that are yielded to him when there's a crisis in in the world. That's what's happening here. Nehemiah realizes there's a crisis, that God has called his people, and yet the people aren't acting correctly. And he's using that situation to make a strong statement about what it means to act right in a situation like that. And not only does he say it, he does it. We're always so quick to tell people what they should do. We should think more about how we should be instead of telling them how they should be. I've, I've, it's, it's so crazy. I can hear people talk and tell you what media they're watching. They just mimic the media they hear. And you can go, oh, I, I know, you're, you're listening to that, or you're watching that, or you're getting your information here, you're getting information. We can just see it because that's what we say. But if we're getting our information from the Bible, if we're getting it from the Word of God, people are going to know. And I don't mean just random Bible quotes that don't mean anything to us, but when they're spoken out of our heart, they're spoken out of our knowledge of what God has taught and is calling us to do. When we do that, then we know that the truth of his word has penetrated our hearts and are working to transform us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again, we acknowledge that this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for your people to open themselves up to the transforming work of your Spirit. It's an opportunity for us to show the world that the followers of your Son, Jesus Christ, are different. That in their love for you, they also love their neighbors. And in that process, we will serve, we will help, We'll put others on equal footing as ourselves. Allow us to do that, Lord. Help us understand. And as we open the eyes of our hearts to the truth that you're making available through your word, speak to us, reveal yourself, and challenge us, examine us, and transform us. We pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.